We'll see how I pronounce it throughout. Sometimes I'll call it Habakkuk, sometimes I'll call it Habakkuk, which is how I learned it as a kid. In the Hebrew, it is probably something to the effect of Habakkuk. So we'll see how all this works. But I want to read a bit more than I have listed in the bulletin. I want to read through chapter 2 and verse 4. So Habakkuk in chapter 1 and verse 1. Hear the word of God. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. They pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose might is their God. You'll notice just in that section, the first four verses, really two through four, is is Habakkuk really complaining, pouring out his heart to God. And then the speaker changes in verse 5, you may have noticed, and it's God who speaks from there. And now Habakkuk comes back in verse 12 after what God has said to him, and he says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as, as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You made mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaints. And then God speaks, verse 2. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will certainly come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is is puffed up. It, It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, I've been thinking about this prophet on and off for the last year. I don't know why. I just have. And so we have a few weeks before Advent begins, and 
So I thought I would share this with you. I thought, why am I thinking so much about Habakkuk? Why does he come to my mind? Uh, not knowing quite why, I thought I would give it a whirl and see perhaps together we can see quite why that this prophet comes back to me in my early morning time. Sometimes I sit and I think, what shall I read today? And I wander my way after the prophet Nahum to Habakkuk. He's an interesting prophet, this man Habakkuk. The first sentence of his prophecy, the first sentence of this book has always caught my attention. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, this word oracle gives a sense there's going to be an oration, there's going to be some word, some message, something that's going to come. Uh, And it sounds very serious and very important. That's what prophets did somehow. They were able to represent God in a way to speak the very truth of God. Habakkuk's a bit different from that, as we will see. But I remember from my King James Version as I was growing up, that this opening sentence was the burden that the prophet Habakkuk had seen. The burden that the prophet Habakkuk saw. A little word oracle translated burden in the King James Version. And that's right to do that. Embedded in this Hebrew word Massah that's translated here oracle or could be translated message can also be translated burden because it kind of gets the nuance of of what's going on inside the prophet there's this burden that has to be cast out there's this burden that's being carried it's got to be lifted up there's this this burden that 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 makes him have to spill this out it's too heavy to carry alone you know what it is to carry a burden and for him it's this burden of what he sees this idea of a burden that prophets would carry is again not unique to Habakkuk in fact some have called the prophets of the Old Testament God's covenant prosecutors God's covenant lawyers And we can see that because very often it's the role of the prophet to bring God's case to the people. That here is God who's made covenant with his people and and, uh, he's made promises to them that he will be their God. That he will protect and provide for them. That he will be faithful to them. And yet when people begin to wander from their faithfulness to God, from, from their embrace of all that God has promised to them. It's the prophets who come and bring God's case and say, be careful now because if you go on the way that you're living, you'll fall under his curse. If you go on not trusting in God, you'll fall under the curses of the covenant and you'll miss the great blessings of the covenant. And so the prophets would go on often and list the curses that could come and list the blessings that could be missed and then leave it with the people and exhort them to follow hard after God, God's covenant uh, attorneys, God covenant, God's covenant prosecutors coming to bring this covenant and all of its provisions to the people of God. And, and that's a burden for them because they would see the very truth of God and they would see the way the people are living and it would move in them to make these pronouncements to the people of God. What's unique about Habakkuk is his burden comes first not from what he hears from God, that second. His burden comes from what he sees 
and what he believes to be true about God. You see, Habakkuk's big problem, ultimately, we'll see this in a minute, I think, is that he believes in God. If he didn't, he wouldn't have this problem. But his problem is that he compares what he sees with, with his understanding of the very nature and the very character of God. Notice very quickly what he sees. Verse 2, he says, How long will I cry for help and you'll not hear? Uh, or cry violence and you'll not save? Uh, why do you make me see iniquity and yet you idly look at the wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. So all kinds of things are, are happening in, in, in his place where he lives. And it's inconsistent what's happening with how he understands the very nature and the very character of God. And what we'll see as we work our way through the prophet Habakkuk is that much of the message is contained in the transformation of Habakkuk. Because as we move from chapter 1 to chapter 3, only three chapters, as we move from chapter 1 to chapter 3, in this prophetic word, what we see is a change not in the circumstances about which Habakkuk's worried. Everything stays the same. I mean, he's right there in history in this slice of time. Things don't change. In fact, as we'll see, God says they're going to get worse. But what happens, you see, is the hinge of this prophetic word is the great expression. In fact, this is the expression, really, that drove the Reformation out of Habakkuk chapter 2. That the righteous man will live by his faith. The righteous one will live by faith. And so as Habakkuk makes his cries to God, two complaints that we saw this morning, one complaint because of what he saw, the second complaint because of how God answered him. And the word to him is to live by faith. What we see is that these circumstances in Habakkuk's life don't change, but he does. So that... At the end of Habakkuk, he moves from his questioning to praying. He moves from his uh, uncertainty to certainty. He moves from his perplexity to trusting. In fact, as one author put it, he moves from being afraid to being a man of faith. He moves from fear even to faith. And I believe that is his message, his own transformation. And it's for us, I think, in the midst of these next couple of weeks to enter into that and to allow ourselves even, to pledge ourselves even, to present ourselves before God even, that we might be so transformed, most especially in the context of when life doesn't make sense. You see, life didn't make sense to Habakkuk. He knew what he saw, he knew what he knew about God, and he put the two together and he said, this doesn't add up, this doesn't make sense. And so we're going to walk through him in his own life, his own transformation, and trust that in the midst of that, God will transform us even as we trust in God. Bit of history. Habakkuk writes somewhere around 600 BC. Just get your mind around that. 2,600 years ago. 600 BC. And remember in the BC, we're counting backwards. And so you got to give us plus or minus about 10 years for Habakkuk, 610 to maybe 590-ish or something like that. And he lived at a very interesting time. Now, just, just hang with me here. Let me just fill in some stuff for you historically. 
You don't need to remember this after today, but, but you will. It'll come back to you. Just, you know this if you've been around the Bible a while. Just history of ancient Israel. You know, there came a time when they requested kings. So God gave Israel King Saul as the first king. And then you remember King David was the second king. And then you remember David's son Solomon was the third king. You might not remember after this, but let me fill this in. After Solomon, Israel split into two kingdoms. Now follow this closely. The northern kingdom, which was to the north, got that? and the southern kingdom, which was to the south. Now the northern kingdom, which was to the north, were the ten northern tribes. Remember, Israel was twelve tribes, named in some sense after the, the, the twelve sons of Jacob. And so 12 tribes, 10 to the north, 2 to the south. The 2 to the south were Judah and, and uh, Benjamin. The 10 tribes to the north retained the name Israel. So when you're reading the Old Testament, after this split, uh, if, if it's a reference to Israel, it's quite likely the reference is to the 10 northern tribes. If it's to the southern um, kingdom, uh, the southern kingdom would simply go by the name of Judah. Now, the, the northern uh, kingdom uh, was unfaithful to God, as was the southern kingdom, but unfaithful to God more quickly, if you will. And so by 721 BC, the Assyrians came and destroyed, in a sense, the northern kingdom. Thus, this expression, the ten lost tribes of Israel, exiled, gone. The southern kingdom still hung on, however. Judah still hung on. There was still semblance from time to time of revival. In fact, there was a king, and, and, and Habakkuk probably lived at least in the latter part of this king's life, if not for all of us. There was a king whose name was Josiah. And Josiah followed after a horrible king whose name was Manasseh. And Manasseh was one of the kings of, of Judah, southern kingdom, one of the kings who brought in all kind of worship of pagan gods. And that infiltrated the people to such a degree that it, it, it influenced all of their character to the point, of course, where they were sacrificing their own children to this pagan god. Just let that sink in, the reality of sacrificing children, killing them, burning them on the altar for the sake of this pagan god. So that sink in. That was the, the tenor of Judah in those days. All sorts of oppression, all sorts of injustice and so forth and so on happening in the southern kingdom. Uh, after Manasseh died, Josiah was made king when he was eight years old. And, and so he was tutored a while. Uh, and when he was 16 years old, he began to seek the Lord. And so you get this sense that Josiah has been turned from the evil ways of the previous king Manasseh. And now Josiah is seeking after the Lord. By the time he was 20, he began to refurbish the temple. The temple it was in ruins. Nobody had used it. There was no need to use it in that culture other than to use it to worship pagan gods. And so, so he began to refurbish it. He began to get all the pagan symbols and all the idols out of the temple. He began to, to get rid of all the unfit priests, if you will. And then when he was 26 years old, uh, there was a great discovery in the temple. And they found the word of God. They found the law. They found it. And, 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 and Josiah began to read it. And as he began to read it, his, his heart was just shattered 
He was just broken because he realized that the people were not living in, in any way uh, according to the law of God. They hadn't ordered their lives around the very presence of God being in their midst and what God required of them to receive the very blessing of God. And so at that point, uh, Josiah took the uh, law of God to the elders of, Israel, uh, elders of Judah. He took the law of God to the priests and, and to the people. And there was literally a great revival throughout the land. Great joy came upon the people. They began to celebrate again. And indeed, the significant moment was when the people of Judah once again celebrated the Passover. They hadn't done it in generations. And here it was celebrating the Passover. And the people seemed to be restored in the very presence of God. And then when he was 38, good King Josiah was killed in battle. And the Egyptian king who killed him in battle entered in and infiltrated again Judah, placed one of Josiah's sons, Jehoiakim, as the next king. And Jehoiakim reverted back to his grandfather Manasseh and reinstituted all the evil that had been in Judah prior to that time. And this is what Habakkuk is observing. This is what he sees. Again, notice in chapter two, or chapter one in verse two, he cries out to God, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you won't see? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. He's saying, God, I don't understand this. You seem to be not listening. You seem to be unable to see what's going on here. There's real violence. Violence in our worship. Children are once again being offered a sacrifice. How can you stand idly by and let that happen, God? I know you. I know your character. I know that you're righteous. I know that you're holy. I know that you're just. How can you let this continue to go on? There's sin everywhere. How can you just look at this wrong and, and just sort of pass it over? There's destruction and violence. There's strife and contention. We can see it among the nations. We can see it uh, among our people. We can see it you know, probably in the context of families and relationships, just like strife and contention in any generation. You can see it in the business world, I'm sure, in the legal world. It says the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. The righteous hem, the, the, the unjust or the wicked hem in the righteous ones so that they're unable even to perform justice. And, and, and again, the problem that Habakkuk comes is not so much only with what he sees, but because he believes in God. If he didn't believe in God, this may not be a big deal. If he didn't think that there was an absolute standard of justice which God had told the people about, if he thought that justice was simply a cultural matter and varied from one place to another, one time to another, perhaps he wouldn't be as bothered about this. He would just realize, well, who am I to, to put my standard of justice on the rest of the community? But he didn't believe that. He believed that God had a standard of justice, that God was righteous. And not only that, that history was determined by God, that God ordained whatever came to pass. And thus, if this was happening, it was happening at the permission of God, that God could enter in and stop this. But for some reason, God didn't. And that's his deal. That's his complaint before God. It's not unique to Habakkuk. 
The psalmists knew this as well. For instance, in Psalm in chapter 6, we read a similar similar word from from David. Um, He begins this psalm by saying, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I'm languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? In other words, how long do I have to endure this? How long do do I have to experience this persecution that's come against me? He he goes on to say that, that verse 6, I'm weary and with my moaning every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. David's saying, how long? I belong to you, God. How long is it going to be until you show yourself here in this place? And then Psalm 73, a a classic of this kind of feeling. Asaph, the psalmist, begins with this statement of faith, as many psalms do. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's That's how he understands God. He says, God's good to us. We belong to him, especially if we're pure in heart. But then he goes on to say this. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Uh, Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase their riches. His vision, what he saw, this psalmist, what he saw all around him was that the unrighteous were prospering while the righteous were not. And he said, God, I don't understand that. In fact, so discouraging was it to him in verse 13, he puts it like this, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children, and he said, "Has it really been all for not God that I've been following after you?" See, that's the sense of Habakkuk, this sense that life at the moment doesn't make sense because of what I see, because of what I'm experiencing. Again, because I believe in God, and that's a contemporary issue, a contemporary sense for us as well. We know who God is. We see his character. We read of his character. We understand his righteousness and holiness. And yet we read the papers. There's violence all around. We know that God is not a God who likes violence, who desires this life of murder and violence. But yet just in yesterday's paper, I'm not going to go through all the news, but in yesterday's paper the day before, an eight-year-old boy killed his father and another and, and a friend of his father's. The suspicion is that this young 
boy had been abused by his father. But think of all of that. God, how can you look upon that and let it be? There's terrorism. I can, you can make your own lists. There's war. There certainly is strife in the context of families. Husbands and wives, children and parents, there's strife in the workplace. There's anxiety because of the economic situation in which we find ourselves. Even, we could say, fear concerning the future. God, I thought we're your people. I thought you would prosper us. I thought that you would care for us and protect us and provide for us. And yet we live in this kind of a world. God, why don't you see? We pray about these things all the time. There are those we love for whom we pray. To come to faith, we think, God, what would be better than that, than this one come to faith? Yet, it appears as if God stands silent, idly by. We see nothing, no movement, no help in their regard, and we wonder about that. We know there's disease, and there's disability, and we pray that God would heal and help, yet still others become sick and disabled, and some die, that for whom we've prayed, who would live. We know there's emotional problems and discouragement and depression, and we see how that impacts people's lives, and we love them, and we pray, God, will you deliver them from this, give them joy, hope in their lives, and yet it seems as if nothing happens, and we wonder, how can that be when God we know is good and God we know is powerful and God we know is wise. Why would this not be that which he would now do? And it causes us to pour out to God how, how long, long before you act. Now it's interesting in Habakkuk's life, God does answer. Notice verse 5. Habakkuk says, look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded from doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And that tells us something, doesn't it, about God. God says, that, you know, you don't think I'm working, but I am. Now, here's the deal, Habakkuk. I'm going to tell you something about what I'm going to do, but trust me, you're not really going to get it. It's not really going to help you that much unless you trust me. Unless you're willing to trust me. Because what he says to him, verse 6. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, who also could be called the Babylonians. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. That, that impetuous nation. That nation that thinks they're stronger than everybody else. That nation, in that period of time, uh, Habakkuk would know. Because it would be that nation that was really literally moving to, uh, throughout the, that part of the world. And, and, and defeating nations. And capturing people. And imposing their life upon the lives of others and the, and the people of other nations and so here was a group of people that were known for their ruthlessness they were known for their ungodliness they were known for their unrighteousness and now you see he comes God does to say to Habakkuk these are the people that I'm raising up to come through and deal with this violence and deal with Israel well then Habakkuk listens to that and almost says to God Okay, you're right. I, I don't get it. I don't understand how you can use people more unrighteous than we are to invade our place and invade our space. Verse 13, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? 
And the pack, a packet goes, I, I don't get it. I'll, I'll wait. I will wait for uh, your answer. All I want to do today then with that is to put that in your mind and make these comments so that in the next two weeks we can flesh all of this out. The hinge of this, I don't want you to go home depressed, but the hinge of all this, of course, is chapter 2 and verse 4 where God says to Habakkuk that it is the righteous who shall live by his faith. So we get the sense that God is setting this up. God is saying, okay, I want you to live by faith. And the truth of the matter is you won't understand everything that I'm doing. You won't be able to get everything that I'm doing. But I still, in the midst of this, want you to trust me. And so it isn't abnormal for someone who lives under God not to see it, not to get it. In fact, it, he's saying to us, it isn't strange really for me to be at work and you not be able to see it. What I need you to do is to trust that I'm working because I am. Now, I may work in ways differently than you understand, differently than you see, but I really am at work. God says, verse 6 of chapter 1, I am raising up the Babylonians. The Babylonians, the Chaldeans, they think they're raising themselves up. They think they're doing this. They think it's all of them, their plans. They're stronger than everybody else, so they're marching through. Truth be known, in the mystery of how I work, God says, no, 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 I'm raising them up because I really do control history. I'm raising them up. I have a task for them to do. What they mean may be one thing. What I mean through what they're going to do is completely another. And I'm going to use them for my glory. The end of chapter 2, he says, and by the way, they'll get it too. Uh, they're not going to be left off the hook because of their unrighteousness. But their work is going to bring blessing ultimately to my people. So God says, I really am at work. And I really do have a timetable. I really do know what I'm doing. Chapter 2 and verse 3, he says, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. What I'm doing, it awaits its appointed time. I know how it looks right now, Habakkuk. I know it looks like I'm standing idly by. It looks like I'm silent, but I really am not. I really am at work. But there's a timetable that I've laid out. So, so, so you're going to have to wait. It hastens to the end. It won't lie. In other words, it's moving along. This is not a false timetable. It's really true. And so God is saying, I really am at work. I really am sovereign over history. I really do have a timetable. It really will work out according to my time. You need to be patient. You need to wait. You need to live by faith. Now, we as people use this expression often that God works in mysterious ways. Usually we say that when we don't have a clue what God could be doing. And sometimes we use it just as a cop-out, just as a coping mechanism. Uh, and so it becomes sort of this sort of trite little saying, but it's really true to us God works in mysterious ways. He's mysterious. He hasn't revealed everything to us. And even as he said here to the prophet Habakkuk, even if he did reveal it to us, we probably wouldn't get it. We probably wouldn't understand. He kindly reveals it to Habakkuk, but Habakkuk still struggles. Habakkuk still doesn't get it. And it still really isn't terribly satisfying to hear God say, I'm going to raise up a group more unrighteous than yourselves, a group more ungodly than you are, to come and discipline you. I play that over in my mind all the time, and it just doesn't work. I think, God, how can you do this? And he says, trust me, I am at work. I have a timetable. 
you will see when you're able, when it's done. Trust me. We have a tendency, and it's a good tendency, to pray by way of prescription. God, someone's sick, heal them. God, some, someone's out of work, give them a job. God, someone's unhappy, make them happy. God, someone's discouraged, give them encouragement. Uh, all of that is good to pray. That's what we call praying the very precepts of God. But in the midst of that, we have to understand, and I think we intuitively do, but we struggle with this because we, we have this sense of eternity in us which is a good sense of eternity in us, that things really should be better than they are. And you know what? They really should be. And you know what? They're really going to be. But God says, I'm at work. I'm at work in some ways that you understand and some ways that you don't understand. And so I'm calling you to live by faith. I'm calling you to live by faith, believing that I really do have everything in control and that I really do have a timetable and that I really do love you. We read this morning for our affirmation of faith this passage from Psalm 46 begins with this statement of faith. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. We all believe that. We know that's true. But then when trouble comes, we say, God, why is this trouble here? I thought you were my refuge and strength. Why am I feeling distressed? Why am I feeling trouble? But then the psalmist goes on to say, therefore, we won't fear. Easy for him to say. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Poetic language, but what the psalmist is saying is that we needn't fear when everything is going wrong. What could be more wrong than the earth giving way? What could be more wrong than the mountains being moved into the heart of the sea? What could be more wrong than the waters roaring and foaming because the mountains are there? What could be more wrong than that? He's saying everything that, that you think is stable, everything that you think is right and good, when that all goes crazy, don't be afraid. Why? Because God really is our refuge and strength. And so at the very end, well, there's this description of God. In the very end, he says, says those words of faith, be still and know that I'm God. And then he says, I will be exalted among the nations. And that's supposed to make us happy. That's supposed to bring us comfort. Because if we think that God will be exalted, what he's saying, then my righteousness will reign. I'll be exalted. I know you don't see it now because the earth is trembling under your feet and you're wondering what's really going on. Trust me, remember, I, I am at work. I am on a timetable. I do know what I'm doing. We are moving to this end. A day will come when you'll see it. So play from, from that point in the future to now and trust me don't be afraid I am your refuge and strength I will keep you even though the earth is shaking even though the mountain you were skiing on is now in Massachusetts right be 
because I'm really with you. And Habakkuk needs to see that, and he will, and we'll see how he sees that at the very end. We need to keep praying these prescriptions because that's God's precepts to us. And we know his heart, and so we pray them, and by faith we cling to that, knowing that a day will come when we will see answers to these prayers in ways perhaps that we would never even imagine. And not only that, that God answers our prayers sometimes in ways that we could never even imagine. For instance, oftentimes we pray that God will enable us to live a godly life. I pray that for myself all the time, that God will enable me to live a godly life. But you know, sometimes he answers that by putting us in the midst of an ungodly situation. And I say, God, I shouldn't be here (laughs) because I want to be godly. And he says, that's why why you're there. I want you to be godly there in the midst of that. And that doesn't make sense to me. I think I should be away from that. He said, no, 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 there you are. I ask God to make me a person who's kind and nice. And he brings into my life all kinds of unkind people. (laughs) And I said, no, God, you don't understand. It's way easier for me to be nice when everybody's nice to me. And he says, I know. So the means by which I'll create niceness in you and patience in you and kindness is you. I'm going to put you in these difficult situations. And I said, no, 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 no. That's really not what I prayed for. That's not how I want you to answer this prayer. But he brings surprising circumstances and surprising people into our lives. I say, God, it seems to us that, that we're ripe and ready to build a, 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 add to our facility at church. So make the stock market go up. <laughs> you know, and I keep having Gideon dreams. Of, no, take away, take away, take away. So that we'll see the glory of the Lord, however that works out and turns out in the midst of our life together. God says, trust me. Don't live on what you see. We know this. Don't live on what you see, but trust me. William Cooper, I'll end with this. A hymn writer, 18th century, he was a good friend of, of uh, the Amazing Grace author, John Newton. Uh, probably William Cooper's most well-known song among us would be, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. But William Cooper lived a very difficult life. He lived most of his adult life in what we would call severe depression. He worried all the time about his eternal salvation. He fretted. Uh, His life was one of great difficulty. Here is one of his hymns. Uh, It's hard to sing given the tune, but so I won't sing it. Isn't the only reason I won't sing it. But the poetry is this. He writes, God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Now, the reason that that's so helpful is because you can't see footprints in the sea. You know? I mean, somebody's walking on the sea. You can't, those, they don't stay there. Now, if he walked on the sand, that would be a different thing. But he doesn't. He says, he's walking on the sea. He's riding upon the storm. You can't see him on the storm because there's clouds and thunder and lightning and all of that. And he says, so he's, he's working his wonders. Next verse, deep in unfathomable minds of never, in, never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. It's his will, not ours. Ye fearful saints, he writes, 
Fresh courage take the clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. I love that last line just because it doesn't seem to fit the eloquence of his poetry. But he said the clouds are big and William Cooper knew clouds that were big in his own life. But he knew by faith that even though they look horrible, these clouds, they're big with mercy. And someday they'll break and blessings will come on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, he says, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And when Cooper said hide, he didn't mean hide in a devious way. He didn't mean hide like I, 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 I'm keeping this from you. He meant this is best for you at this moment in time. And Cooper was saying, understand that behind this difficult time is God's smile, not his mocking smile, but his accepting, loving, contented smile that he's pleased with you. He writes, his purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he'll make it plain. In other words, unless we come by faith to God, we'll miss everything. Blind unbelief is sure to err. It's sure to miss it. It's sure to get what God is doing wrong. And so he says, God's his own interpreter. Be patient. He'll make it plain. The prophet Habakkuk learned that. And I trust we too will. Let's pray together. So we come to pray uh, this morning uh, just a couple of things by way of information to help you in your praying. Um, Junius Penny uh, passed away this week. Many of you would have known June and his wife, Mary Lou. Uh, they came to our second service, but uh, June, Penny di June died this <clears throat> last Thursday, so please be in prayer for his family. And then Ed White called me last night to tell me that his grandson, Caden, uh, that the tumor is returned uh, in little Caden. And the doctors say there isn't anything they can do. And uh, so let's pray for them as well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, We identify with our brother Habakkuk with such news. We pray that you would grant to us faith to believe, to trust, to know that you are indeed at work, to know that your timetable is perfect, to know that a day will come when you will make all things plain to us, that we need to know. We pray for Caden, that you would be with him, strengthen his faith. Still our desire would be that you heal his body. Be with his parents, Darren and Shannon, certainly Ed and Peggy, as grandparents. 
and for us as a community to continue to love this family and trust in you. Father, we thank you for Junius. We thank you for June Penny and his life and all that he meant, most certainly to those he loved and to many, many others as well. So we pray, Father, that you'd be with his wife and his family, that you would grant them peace in their grief. Father, we thank you that you are at work in our lives. We thank you that you're at work even in our own country. Uh, We give you thanks for hearing our prayers concerning the elections of the past week. Uh, We trust that you are at work here in us in these days. Uh, We thank you for uh, President Bush and his service. We pray that you would bless his life and family. We give you thanks uh, and pray for President-elect Obama and pray that you would be with him and his his family in these days of transition. And Father, we continue to pray that righteousness and grace will prevail in our country. Father, we pray for those who um, minister in the name of Christ. In one sense, we pray for all of us then because we're all called to do ministry. Father, we have some in particular this morning to lift up Mark and Brenda Brown with Campus Crusade. Father, we pray for them as they lead the campus here. And I pray for Mark, especially as he spends these weeks uh, shoring up the funding for his family and their ministry. So bless him in that. For Don Miller in Spain, Father, thank you for her work and her encouragement. We pray for Jeff and Sarah McKinney, Father, as Jeff is deployed and is working as a chaplain. We pray that he would be a blessing to the men. Uh, to whom he ministers, and we pray for Sarah, Father, as she keeps uh, the home fires burning and ministers in her own way among the wives. So, Father, be with them. God, it is good to be yours. We don't know what we would be if we weren't. We give you thanks that you are trustworthy. We pray that in these days we can cast our cares upon you, knowing that you indeed do care for us. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. Uh, Our response will be to sing together. So please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace be brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and together let us sing. Mm -hmm.